And to that we say, amen. Indeed, the word of God is so many things to us. Paul tells us that it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. And it's to that word that we want to turn now this morning. Open your Bibles up with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to begin reading this morning at the beginning of the chapter. We've already looked at part of this chapter, uh, the first half of it really. We'll be, uh, we're going to read the, the whole chapter this morning. We'll be looking, uh, beginning to look at the second half of it. But let's uh, enjoy the Word of God, as it's read this morning from Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for the the wonders of your word, for the riches of your word, that deep, deep mind where we can find great jewels uh, that you have have placed within our reach, Lord, that we can uh, learn from them and rejoice in them. And we pray that we would do so in these words this morning. We pray for your blessing upon the preaching of your word, and we pray for your blessing upon the hearing of your word as well, O God. And to all of these things, we pray that you would glorify yourself, and we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. 
Let me remind you of those opening words that we read from the first two verses. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Remember when we looked at those verses a couple of weeks ago, we said that that is the, the overarching command, that we are to not be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed. That that is our, our true and proper service of worship to God. That's what we are called to do because of the mercies that God has shown to us. That we then, considering what God has done, and of course Paul's gone through the first 11 chapters of Romans laying out what God has done, the riches of the justification that he gives to us, of the work of Christ that he brings to us, of the peace with God that we have through that justification. He's given that all to us, those mercies, and because of those, we've learned that we are to live our lives now in gratitude. That's the, the heading for our lives, Christian, is gratitude. Gratitude for what God has done. Because we don't deserve any of what he has given to us. We deserve only judgment. But God has given to us grace. He has shown us mercy. And so as we look at these verses then in Romans chapter 12, and we, we look at what God calls us to do this should bring a question to our mind, and I think that question is, how do we do this? What does the, the Christian life of sacrifice, molded by a renewed mind and focused on the good, acceptable, perfect will of God, what does that look like? We read in verses 3 through 8 last week of the existence of gifts that God gives, His grace gifts, because He gives them by grace. They're given to every member of the church. And we looked at the importance of using those gifts in the church. And what then is the appropriate context for us as we use those gifts? That's the topic of the rest of chapter 12, where Paul enters into a an interesting section of, of the book of Romans. If you've, even as we read from just chapter 12, but if you read more of it, you, you're reading along and there's a certain cadence that Paul has as he writes, and then all of a sudden when he gets here to chapter 12 and to verse 9, all of a sudden his, his tempo quickens, the verses here, the statements are very short and staccato, and they come one right after the other, a whole bunch, all crammed in here together. A rapid-fire series of brief exhortations, brief commands, brief instructions to us. In fact, in verses 9 through 21, there are about 25 different exhortations, instructions to us that Paul gives to us to help us to know how we are to offer up ourselves to God as living sacrifices, as he said back in verse 1. Specifically, he focuses here on how we relate to others, especially in the later part of the chapter. 
But how do we re- relate to one another, uh, both within the church and with those outside of the church? It's a very interesting 13 verses here. Biblical scholars, biblical commentators are as perplexed as pastors and teachers about how to outline these verses. And, and if you take notes and you look there in the, the bulletin, you'll see that there is no outline. It's because it's, it's hard to outline this. In fact, it appears that Paul is using a, a teaching method that was common to both Jewish teachers and Greek teachers, uh, writers, the method of which is just to, to do just what Paul's doing stringing together a series of admonitions of of general ethical content. But the intent is very clear. Even if the outline is not, the intent is clear. And let us hear this with due seriousness this morning. The intent is to demonstrate the nature of true Christianity and to encourage us in our responsibilities as members of the church of Christ. Particularly, as I said, regarding how we deal with one another, our our personal relationships. And so if you'd like an outline for this morning and and next Sunday morning, and perhaps the Sunday morning after that, we'll see, the outline is simply going to be the exhortations that Paul gives. My hope is to get through about half of them this morning, maybe through verses 12 or 13, and then we'll continue to just work through this chapter as we look at what Paul gives us regarding these instructions for how we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. So we'll start at the beginning, and when we get to the end, we'll stop. It'll take a few weeks to do that. But first of all, Paul begins in verse 9 with something that's a little, a little different, a little special. It appears to be an overarching instruction, a, a, a heading almost, for what follows. And it is this, let love be genuine. People of the church, people of God, you here this morning, them there in Rome, let love be genuine. As I say, this appears like an overarching instruction, a command within a a heading. It it looks that way because of its its linguistic nature. There's not even a verb there, although in our English translations we say, let love be genuine, but literally it just says, the love, genuine. But also we know that because it concerns the epitome of, of Christian character, which is love. Love is, remember, the the identifying and the preeminent Christian virtue. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the badge. That's the uniform for us is love. 1 John 3:14 says we know that we have passed out of death into life how because we love the brothers. He says elsewhere that, that if we say we're from God but we don't love we're lying. Because it is not possible for someone who is truly regenerate, 
truly justified, truly converted by God to not love, to not seek to love, to not endeavor to love, to not seek with everything in them to love. It's also the preeminent, also the the, uh, overarching command of God the Father, of Jesus Christ, and of the apostles of Christ. According to 1 John 3.23, we read that this is the commandment, this is his commandment, John writes, that we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his Son, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. And he himself, Jesus himself, commanded us to this in John 15, 12. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Couldn't be clearer. Could not be more direct. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There's a a statement of the type of love that we are to have, the sacrificial type of love that we are to have for one another. We're going to continue to talk about that this morning. And in John 13, 34, Jesus also said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And to this the apostles agree. John himself writes, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Love is, in fact, Paul will say here, right, in the very next chapter that we'll be looking at, love itself is the fulfilling of the law of God. Look down in verse, or chapter 13 and verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? When when they asked him, what is the great commandment? Jesus broke it down into two. And what are those two? Love God, love your neighbor. Do you see the common theme? Love. We are to love not just friends, but enemies alike. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. And he went on to reason. He says, if you just love those who love you, you're not doing anything more than anybody would do. But Jesus calls us to love those who don't love us. Love of one another is the soil in which the church functions. It is the the soil in which the gifts of God grow and flourish, the things that we talked about last week. And Paul's particular concern here is with the nature of that love. He says, let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Let it be true. Let it be without hypocrisy. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1.22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. From a pure heart. Each of us is to be beloved to each of us. And especially here is the idea that our love is to be sincere, not fake, not put on, 
The word comes from a, a group of words that has to do with, with play-acting. The same group of words where we get the word hypocrite. He's saying love needs to be sincere. It has to be real and true and genuine. And the word for love here that he uses is that word that Christians particularly adopted to use to describe the highest love, the sacrificial, unhypocritical, sincere love of God to us, the word agape. Now be careful, there are some teachers who like to put a lot of stock in the difference between the different Greek words for love, which does not work. But agape does seem to often express the particular love that Christians are to have for one another. And you see that this is, this is above all. Since, since Paul's recently been talking about gifts, it's interesting to note that he moves here. Last week we looked at the gifts, and now he moves right on to let love be genuine which is the same thing he did in time, will do in uh, order of the books of the Bible in the book of 1 Corinthians. Remember last week we spent a little time talking about gifts. We were looking in 1 Corinthians. Uh, as Paul there, remember, utilizes that same picture of the body and the different members of the body and how they're all important and how they all need one another. They're unable to, to do, to work without everyone, every part of the body working together. And then the stress on the source of those gifts being the Holy Spirit, as well as the truth that he gives gifts to everyone, to all of us, and he gives them to us for what he called the common good, that is the good of the church. Remember, that's all from last week. But as Paul concludes chapter 12 on giftedness, he does so by saying, and I will show you a still more excellent way, in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, a more important aspect of the Christian life. And you know what follows 1 Corinthians chapter 12? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One of the most famous passages in the New Testament. It begins like this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers and, and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. He says, if I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on and describes that love. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. But it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And Paul says, let love be genuine. That's genuine love. What Paul describes in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he encourages us to hear. For us as well, and, and again, the idea that love follows the idea of giftedness because love is the, 
the soil, as I say, of the functioning of the gifts. For us as well, everything we do in the church is subsumed under and controlled by love, by the sincere love of each of us for one another. Sincere, honest love. That's first. That's the topic. Now he's going to work that out. The next two instructions that he gives, let's consider those together because they're so closely bound together. So numbers two and three here together. Paul says, still in verse nine, he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. These commands here in this second part of of verse nine refers back to that first phrase and shows in what this genuine, sincere love consists. And that's namely that genuine love will abhor what is evil and it will hold fast to what is good. And the verbs there in those instructions, abhor and hold fast, are very strong verbs. The ESV here translates the first one very well, very clearly, abhor. That's a very visceral word, isn't it? It describes well the force of the original word. It means to have a vehement dislike for something, to to hate it exceedingly. It's interesting that as we talk about love, that now we're talking about in order to love, you need to hate. You say, what's the connection between love and the hatred, the abhorrence of evil? Well, the object is important. We are to hate evil. And it's really quite clarifying because in it we are reminded that love, biblical love, true love, is not this thoughtless, emotion-driven thing that the whole world around us talks about as being love. But that it is a truth-driven state of mind. And the only biblical reaction to what is evil is to hate it, as God does. The highest object of our love is God. And we are to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And God hates equal, evil. Proverbs 15.9 says, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And Psalm 97.10 gives us this instruction, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Evil, after all, is the opposite of all that is good and godly. Evil is all that opposes God, and therefore we cannot join with it, we cannot tolerate with it, we cannot be pleased with it in any way. In ourselves, in our world, in our church, in our relationships. True love hates everything that is contrary to God, since God is the source, He is the standard of love and of goodness. And not only are we to abhor evil, Paul says, but we are to hold fast to what is good. On the flip side, hold fast is also a strong verb. It means, it means to be joined to. The, the original uh, derivation of the word has to do with joining something together with glue. So we are to be joined to it. We are to cling to it. We are to be glued to what is good. It's used in other places of the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. We should be wed to the good. 
We should be as attracted to the good as we are repulsed by the evil and as attached to the good as we abhor what is evil. The prophet Amos said, hate evil and love good. Same thing Paul is saying here. And genuine, sincere love will do that. It will abhor evil. It will never do evil. It will not draw others to evil. It will not countenance evil. It will not allow evil to go unaddressed in relationships even. Rather, the transformed heart, the metamorphed heart, will love what is good and rejoice in the good. Which leads us to a fourth instruction. Paul's fourth instruction here. In verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Another amplification of the importance of genuine, sincere love as the guiding principle under which we are all to live. And here, here Paul sort of descends from those general statements to very particular statements. Very concrete statements now about how love acts. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. And I, and I love this one. It's so powerful. It's so important. It's eye-opening. And it's convicting. We shouldn't shy away when things convict us, when God's Word convicts us. We should love that too because it is good. A more recent translation called the Christian Standard Bible, really draws this out and gets to what Paul is saying here. It says, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Love one another deeply. Be devoted, the word means, to one another. See, here Paul is speaking about relationships, about the relationships with one another in the church. Your love for one another, Christian, is to be deep. How deep? Well, as deep as brothers and sisters, or in our text here, in our translation, with brotherly affection. The word that Paul uses there about brotherly affection is the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. And it's a word that outside of Scripture and using it in regard to to us as people uh, in the family of God, the word was really only used about physical relatives, physical brothers and sisters. And Paul is emphasizing here really just that. He is emphasizing the family aspect of the church, the family, the familial reality of the church. Because we are not just like a family. We are a family with one Father, God, indwelt by one Spirit that that binds us together. We are united to one Christ, and we are therefore to love one another, to be devoted to one another as a family. We often talk about our church family, but often it's just talk. I don't mean this. Paul doesn't mean this in a metaphorical way. He means it literally. 
Paul means literally we are to love one another. You are to love those sitting around you. As you do your natural family, your physical family. Sinclair Ferguson's book that we've been going through in our men's and women's fellowship, the men talked about this last time, the women will talk about it today. One of the figures that that Ferguson uses in the book is that we are to be addicted to one another. We're not just a group of people that come together on Sunday, on Thursday maybe, and meet together sort of with a common purpose. But we are a family. And I don't mean, and Paul doesn't mean, sort of a distant, you know, a third cousin twice removed kind of family. But like your immediate family, you are to love them. I won't have you look around. This would be a great time in some churches to have everybody stand up and go meet one another and say, I love you as a brother or sister in the Lord. I won't do that. But just think of the person sitting in front of you, since you can see them. You love them as an extension of your own family. Paul says you should. Paul says you must. Love one another with brotherly affection. That is part of what it means for you to be transformed, renewed. That is part of what it means for you to offer up yourself to God as a living sacrifice, which is your true and proper service of worship to Him for the mercies that He has shown to you. He has made you a family. Paul's saying, act like it. Sometimes that's not easy. But it's right. And if you think that is difficult, let's look together at the fifth instruction. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, not only do you have to love your fellow church members like your own family, not only do you have to to hold them dear in your heart, but you have to show that love. By honoring them, Paul says here, by honoring them above yourself. Well, now we're into it, aren't we? Over in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And by the way, by the fact there that we are to count each other more significant than we are, the implication is that our looking to the interest of others is actually to take precedence over looking to our own interests. Now some have interpreted, I think misinterpreted, uh, the word outdo here in Romans 12 to kind of just equate it exactly with what Paul is saying over in in Philippians. And there is something of that in this, but Paul is taking it to the next level here in Romans. He's saying, you know, not just look to the needs of others above yours, but he's saying rush 
to do that. Rush to put the interests of others before your own. Compete, as it were, to show honor to others. Compete to put the other person in the most important place. He says, outdo one another. You try to honor. Are you honoring me? No, I'm honoring you. You give the higher place to me? Well, no, I will give an even higher place to you. I will go out of my way to show deference, to show honor to you, to see that you get a blessing, that if anyone is to to receive glory, if anyone is to receive attention, it will be you, not me. Huh? Talk about not being conformed to the world. How contrary to the world's attitude is this? The world says, you have to look out for number one, and number one is me. But the Bible says, flip that on its head. You are more important than me. Not, I want this privilege in the church, but I want you to have that privilege. You go before me. You sit in the best seats. You should get the honor. We are to desire the preference to go to others in the church and to be very willing to give up that honor ourselves. In expressing genuine Sincere love, brotherly love, our instinct, our habit, our reflex should be to put others first. And God calls us to the reasonable service, to the true and proper service of that kind of humility, that kind of honor, that kind of genuine love for one another. Now, Now, before we go on, we're going to talk about prayer in a little bit here, but let's pause right here for just a moment and admit of how important prayer is in all that we've seen so far. Why is it so important? Why is prayer on our part so important and grace on God's part so important? It's because we need both if we're going to be able to do any of this because we can't do any of this on our own. Only with the work of the Holy Spirit taking place by the grace of God can we see these things become true of us. And so we must pray. We must humbly submit ourselves. We must pray that we will humbly submit ourselves to one another and to God's word in these things. That's what we're called to do. You and I, all of us in this church, every church. In the sixth instruction that Paul gives. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. In other words, here he says, don't hold back in your commitments. Not lagging behind in diligence, he's saying. Basically, he's saying, in regard to all of these things, don't be lazy. Don't shirk on your commitment to one another and to the church. So here Paul shifts again to the way these things are to be done. And you see, now he's back to to how we are to love 
And it is commitment. It is zeal regarding these commands that he's been giving us. Don't be hesitant. Don't be slow. Don't be sloth-like in loving one another, in showing preferential honor to others. Don't be like a sloth. You know what a sloth is like. Most of you have seen, most of the children have probably seen, and many adults have seen uh, the movie Zootopia. And you remember Flash, the DMV clerk, who in a wonderful bit of casting is a sloth. And even if you haven't, you know what a sloth is. You know how a sloth moves and everything that it does. It moves slowly. I learned the other few weeks ago that it even digests its food slowly. Two weeks or something like that to digest food. Don't be like a sloth in regard to these things. You know, the slothful person, the, the one who is not or who is being slothful in zeal says, I'll do these things when I get around to them. It may take me a long time to get around to them, but that's when I'll do it. Paul's saying, don't let your zeal be extinguished by laziness. Don't let your zeal be extinguished by selfishness. Do what God calls you to do. That's the negative here, the slothful. Don't be slothful. The next command gives us the positive side. Again, in verse 11, he says, be fervent in spirit. Be fervent in spirit. That's better. The first part of the verse is the evil that we're to abhor. This is the good that we are to be glued to. Be fervent in spirit. The word fervent there is also a, a powerful word. It used, Literally, it means to boil, to cause something to boil, to seethe, to be on fire. Don't be slothful in your zeal to do these things, but rather be on fire to do them. Be on a rolling boil to show honor to one another, to love with genuine, sincere love. Now, if you look at the verse, you see there the word spirit. Be fervent in spirit. And if you've got the ESV, matter of fact, I think almost every other translation has a small s, lowercase s. Now, in the original, there's no difference. The word for spirit, the human spirit, is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. So it's hard to know in some cases when it just says spirit, which one is being referred to, and that's the case here. Although Luke used similar language to refer to a man named Apollos, remember in the book of Acts, he was described as having been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. Speaking there clearly of his spirit. So whether this is the Holy Spirit uh, causing you to be fervent or whether this is you desiring and, and making the endeavor to be fervent, we don't know. But let's just note this, both are required. For our part, we must 
Be zealous. We must pray. We must be determined. We must seek God's revealed will in the Bible about how to and the importance of being fervent in our service and our sincere love for our brothers and sisters. And we must be praying that the Holy Spirit will work all of that in our hearts, that he will work fervency in our hearts, that he will set us on fire to love one another. How often do you love that or do you pray that? We should add that to our prayer list. Pray that the Holy Spirit would set us each and every one on fire in reference to loving one another. That he will bring us to a boil in our zeal to obey God and to love his people. So the Holy Spirit is required and our spirit is required to do this. The last part of verse 11 then directs us to an understanding that the true goal of this is that we serve the Lord. This zeal, this fervor that we are to have is not without direction. It's not without purpose. It has, in fact, the highest purpose. All of this really has the highest purpose. In all of this, we are serving the Lord. Remember, we are rendering spiritual service of worship to God. That's what Paul is working out. That's what he's describing here. Sometimes it's a temptation for us to become so involved in the relational aspect of our day-to-day, our week-to-week, our Christian lives, even in the good things that Paul calls us to do, that we can lose sight of of the vertical component of our service. And forget that these things are instructions for a living sacrifice that is to be offered to God. Whatever you do, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, Paul said in Colossians 3.17, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And as we, beloved, as as we love sincerely, as we love what God loves, as we hate what God hates, as we seek the highest place for others, as we love one another with, with brotherly love, in doing these things, we are serving the Lord and not man. We are serving with that true and proper service of worship that we are called to offer according to Romans 12, 2. As we use our gifts... As we love others, let us do so as part of that true and proper service of worship that God's called us to. Paul continues in in verse 12 and gives us our ninth instruction. Rejoice in hope. An instruction so simple, but such a source of great blessing. The call to us is to rejoice, to experience and or to express an inner joy, an inner sense of well-being, to be glad. The word means to be filled with joy and to express that. And we're commanded to do it once in a while when things are going really great. No, we're called to do it all the time. Remember Philippians 4.4? Rejoice in the Lord always. So important that Paul says, again, I will say, rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul says simply, rejoice always. 
How do we do that? How can we rejoice always? I mean, really, when there's so much trouble in the world. You know, just yesterday we remembered one of the darkest days in in our nation's history. How do we rejoice? How do we rejoice when there's so much sickness, so much strife, so much political and moral and cultural upheaval? And not just out there. How do we rejoice when in here, among the families of our congregation, maybe even in our own family, there are troubles? You know, life is not called a veil of tears for no reason. But we're called, Christian, to rejoice. Again, how? Well, we can give thanks to the apostle for giving us the answer. We rejoice in something very specific because of something very specific. Rejoice, he says, in hope. Our ability to rejoice always depends on the object of our joy. Not in circumstances, not in what we see with our eyes, not in what we even suffer in our bodies. But Paul says rejoice in hope. Here's something for you to rejoice in. And looking at those other passages, you can rejoice always when you're rejoicing in hope. We rejoice in the hope that comes from God's promises and the confidence that we are given through them. Confidence and hope. Remember, hope is a confident expectation based on the promises and the the goodness and the veracity of God. Hope that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Hope that if we believe in Christ that God has forgiven us completely of all of our sins, and that he views us as righteous for the righteousness of Christ credited to us as ours in our justification. Hope that God will never then hold our sins against us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hope that we are adopted as his children and are recipients then of his care and his blessing and a future, a future inheritance that God said is kept in heaven for you. Hope that Christ will come again and take us to himself, that where he is, there we will be also. Hope that when he comes, he will change our bodies, change them to be like his. We will have sinless, diseaseless, weaknessless bodies for eternity. New, rebuilt bodies that are fit to live on the new earth in the new heaven that he will create. And of course, we could sit here and go on and on and on and on and on and on thinking of the promises that God has given. The hope that he gives to us in which, beloved, we are to rejoice. 
As we set our minds on those things, as we trust in those promises, beloved, we can and will rejoice in that hope that we have. In the midst of whatever is going on, if our eyes are focused on the author and finisher of our faith and the promises that we have in him that are yes and amen in Christ, we will be able to rejoice. Now, as a further help in rejoicing in our Christian hope, Paul gives us two other instructions in this verse that fit sort of hand in glove with the instruction to rejoice in hope. The first is be patient in tribulation. Verse 12. Patience. Long-suffering. That's what we're instructed to. While we're here, while we're living in this world... Jesus gave us another promise. In John 16, I have never seen this come up in the little bread of life thing, in the promise calendar. But Jesus promised us, he said, in the world you will have tribulation. Trials, difficulties, sufferings, disappointments, persecutions. There is no escaping that while we are here. There will be trouble for fallen people in a fallen world who are citizens of heaven. But our calling as Christians is to be patient in them. To be patient in the midst of them, as hard as it can be sometimes. We need to keep a biblical perspective on all of these things. And so we need, we need to put on that armor of God daily. And with all of that armor of God that he has given to us, we also need to have what we could call the visor of a Christian worldview. That everything we see, we see through that worldview. We have to have a firmly entrenched biblical and Christian understanding. That grid through which we evaluate what goes on in our lives. We need to strengthen our faith by understanding what God does promise in his word. We need to utilize the resources that he gives us through his word, through the church, through this family that he's put together. And when we do, we can be patient in our tribulation. And then one of the most important of those tools is his next instruction in verse 12, our 11th instruction. He says, be constant in prayer. Well, when you think of all of these things that we've been talking about, how could we not be? This has been a need in the church and has been a mark of the church from the days of the apostles. In the early church, in Acts 1, the followers of Christ who were gathered together, Luke says, were devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts 2, when the church was gathering together, Luke says that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Prayer is so important. This is necessary. Prayer is necessary if we are to be patient in tribulation, if we are to rejoice in hope. And what does it mean to be constant in prayer? Should the church turn into a monastery and we become sort of recluses that just pray? Well, obviously not but we are to always be ready to pray, always to be quick quick to pray. It should be, listen to this, prayer should be our first resort, not our last resort. 
How often is it the other way around? How often? We've done everything that we can do. Let's pray. Instead of praying and then doing everything that you can do to see which one of those things God will bless, which one of those things God will use, or maybe none of them. Maybe he works outside of what you can do. There is never a time, Christian, when it is not right and it is not proper to pray. If we think of all the purposes of prayer, we'll understand this. In prayer, we worship. In prayer, we rejoice in God. In prayer, we fight against sin. We call out for help and for grace and for comfort and for compassion for ourselves and for others. All of that through prayer. We give thanks. We give praise. We give adoration to God for His goodness and gifts through prayer. And it is through prayer, beloved, that we ask for patience in our tribulations, in our trials. And notice, we don't pray, we're not to just pray for rescue from them, but for patience in them. With the understanding that God very often does not want to rescue us from temptation, but to take us right down through the middle of the tribulation that we face. He sends them for the reason that he can take us through them, those tribulations, those trials, so that he can grow us. He can increase our confidence in him so that others in the congregation can help us with their gifts that they have and that they are using. So we don't pray only for rescue, but for patience and tribulation. See, so there is no circumstance in your life where you can say, I have nothing to say to God. Nothing to ask God at this time. There always is. And so in every aspect of our offering of our lives as living sacrifices to God because of the mercies of God, let us be constant in prayer. I almost made it to verse 13 but we'll leave that for next time. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these, for what you have given us this morning. We thank you for these wonderful instructions and we we thank you especially for the hope that we have. The hope that comes from you and from your blessing, from your work, your doing, your promises, the assurance that we have because you are a good God, that you have done great things and that you have given us to Christ, and you have given us Christ. You have given us the Holy Spirit to work in us. And so we rejoice, and we hope, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to show genuine love to one another. And we ask it in his most wonderful name. Amen.